0: About 7 p.m. on the 10th of April, three distinct columns of flame burst forth near the top of Tomboro Mountain, all of them apparently within the verge of the crater. In a short time, the whole mountain appeared like a body of liquid fire, extending itself in every direction. The fire and columns of flame continued to rage with unabated fury until the darkness caused by the quantity of falling matter obscured it at about 8 p.m. Between 9 and 10 p.m. ashes began to fall, and soon after a violent whirlwind ensued, which blew down nearly every house in the village of Sagar. In the part of Sagar adjoining Tamboro, its effect was much more violent, tearing up by the roots the largest trees and carrying with them men, houses, cattle, and whatever else came within its influence. The sea rose nearly 12 feet higher than it had ever been known to be before. The Raja of Sagar, 1815. 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 7, Volcano On April 10th, 1815, the mountain of Tambora on the island of Sumbawa in what is now Indonesia exploded. The force of this volcanic explosion was so vast it can barely be measured. I've tried to estimate the equivalent force of this eruption in terms of megatons, TNT, it's how we measure the power of nuclear weapons, and I couldn't come up with a reliable number. Let's just say that the power unleashed on that spring evening was beyond anything humans are capable of. This eruption, which killed, directly or indirectly, about 112,000 people, is the largest single volcanic eruption in the whole period of recorded human history. In addition to the almost unbelievable suffering it brought to the people of Sumbawa and the neighboring islands, the Tambora eruption of 1815 went on to change the world, literally change the world in more ways than I can count. One of the ways was the effect it had on the world's climate. The particles ejected into the stratosphere by this eruption greatly accelerated a process of global climate change that was already underway thanks to a previous volcanic eruption of another mountain in 1809. The Tambora event is generally credited with causing the series of weather and climate anomalies that's come to be known as the year without summer, and which is one of the major reasons why the second decade of the 19th century was so unusual. Tambora was huge. It was huge in power, huge in effect. Yet strangely, the word Tambora appears only sporadically in history. When we start talking about Indonesian volcanoes, many more people have heard the word Krakatoa, another much smaller eruption that happened later in the 19th century than people who've heard of Tambora. But Tambora didn't just happen in a vacuum. This disaster happened in a real place and affected the lives of real people. Some, like the Raja of Salgar, lived to tell about it. Others didn't. This is the story of Tambora, the world it happened in, and some of the people it happened to. Like everything else in the second decade, there's a lot more to the story than it seems at first. So let's go now to this island in the East Indies and the slopes of the volcano that changed history. Sumbawa is a green squiggle of an island, nestled in a chain of green jungle islands called the Lesser Sunda Islands. It's the kind of place that's almost a vacation spot. Bali, famed for its beaches and resorts, is only two islands over. But somehow the world doesn't seem to have discovered Sumbawa. You can find this island on Google Earth. Seriously, take a look at it. If you use Google Earth, make sure the photos box on your primary database list, that's on the control panel to the left, make sure that's checked. I really like the little photos on, on Google Earth. They show up as, uh, as little blue squares that you can click. And I looked at some of them. Uh, they were very interesting. Some were pictures of boats and sampans floating along in incredibly blue bays and lagoons, ringed by white sand beaches, acres of palm trees. It's a pretty rugged island, mountainous, lots of hills and valleys, most of them either heavily forested or covered in grass. From space, Sumbawa looks a little bit like a crab with two claws sticking up, almost touching each other. If you zoom in on the easternmost claw, you'll start to see a brownish-white dot poking out of a sea of green. Zooming in farther, you'll recognize the dot as a crater, a huge crater, almost three miles across. Just from space, you can see the incredible devastation that happened more than 200 years ago. Sumbawa and the surrounding islands, which are today part of Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim nation, but that country is a pretty recent invention. This area, perched precariously between Southeast Asia and Australia, between the Pacific and the Indian Oceans, has been one of the crossroads of the world for centuries. Indeed, Sumbawa is a kind of frontier. It marks a kind of unofficial boundary. The islands to its west were influenced culturally and religiously, mostly by India. The islands to its east were always a bit wilder, a bit more unknown. In the Middle Ages, Sumbawa was ruled by the Majapahit Empire, which was centered on the island of Java. But it was always sort of a frontier, pretty difficult to govern from afar. The Majapahit found this out in medieval times. The Dutch were to learn that lesson in the 17th century, and the British in the second decade. For a long time, Sumbawa was wired into the world, or at least a regional economy. A plant called sapon wood grows on this island, and it's been used for centuries to make red dye. Honeybees are also plentiful here, and in some corners of the jungle you find sandalwood. That's the high-value export that we met in the episode on Hawaii. Because of these commodities, Sambaba was a destination for local traders from the neighboring islands. So I want you to imagine what this island was like centuries ago, right up until 1815. Green, lush, jungly, grassy, dotted with little native villages of fishermen and farmers and traders, sailing to this island or that one with loads of sandalwood or dyes or crops, the occasional Hindu temple or simple mosque made of local materials. Soaring above it all, hovering there on the horizon, is a mountain peak, a huge mountain, 14,000 feet tall. It probably looked like Mount Fuji lording over Tokyo. This was Mount Tambora. For centuries, the people of Sumbawa went about their business in its shadow. There's a great deal we don't know about these people or their history, or the history of many of these islands in the East Indies. Many of the cultures here didn't leave much behind in the way of written records, like the Majapahit Empire itself. And What records there are exist very spottily, It obscure local languages, and they tend to be as much mythology as history. But we do know that volcanoes have been a major part of the history of these islands. Just to Sambawa's west, between it and Bali, is an island called Lombok. One of the few written histories of this area that survives to the present day is a chronicle called the Babad Lombok, written on palm leaves, which tells the history of the island of Lombok, its kings, Lots of wars and invasions involving neighboring islands, including Sambawa. Three years ago, in 2013, historians studying the Babad Lombok Chronicle made a startling discovery. They found in it an account of a massive volcanic disaster that occurred centuries ago, a huge eruption that killed many people and caused the king and his entourage to flee for their lives. From clues in the Babad Lombok, historians were able to to date this event precisely, It happened in the year 1257 or 1258 AD. From this, researchers could tell the mountain that erupted, a volcano called Salamas on one of the neighboring islands. This discovery was key because it linked up with scientific evidence of a period of global cooling that began at exactly that time and has been cited as the beginning of what climate historians sometimes call the Little Ice Age. So we know that massive eruptions... Events so big they have the potential to change the world's climate have happened before in this area. And it's no accident that there are also many huge volcanoes with this kind of potential in the East Indies. These islands and the shallow ocean waters underneath Indonesia form one of the most seismically active areas in the entire world. I'm going to digress just a moment and tell a personal story. I usually don't do this, but it is relevant, I think. When I was in college, some friends of mine and I were trying to kill some time one afternoon, and we went to one of those IMAX theaters, which were pretty new at that time. The movie that was playing there was a documentary called Ring of Fire. I'll never forget it. This announcer with a booming voice would say, very dramatic, Ring of Fire. Then suddenly they'd show this Japanese guy in front of these two huge drums, taiko drums I think they're called, and he'd beat the drums, very dramatic, kind of unintentionally funny. For months, my friends and I would look at each other and say, Ring of Fire, and somebody would immediately start pounding something to pretend to be the taiko drummer. It was an in-joke, always got a laugh from us. I looked up the movie on Internet Movie Database. It came out in 1991, and it's about the huge chain of volcanoes that circles the entire Pacific, from Japan on one side to the Pacific Northwest, and the Andes on the other. The chain is super active volcanic islands in the East Indies, Right where Sumbawa and Lombok are is the most active part of this ring of fire. Anyway, all kidding aside, the island of Sumbawa in the second decade was what we historians call a contested space. Unbeknownst to the farmers and fishermen and traders who went about their business in Tambora's shadow, the fate of their island, at least politically, was determined by events half a world away in Europe, And it had to do, like so many other things in the second decade, with Napoleon. To understand how Napoleon is relevant to Tambora and the island of Sumbawa, first we have to talk about the Dutch East India Company. This, of course, was a vast syndicate of ships and merchants and banks that specialized in one thing, making money for Holland. During the 16th and 17th centuries following the Age of Discovery, the little country of Holland spread its commercial tentacles out to a lot of exotic places, mostly places that had resources they could sell for a high price in Europe. The Dutch East India Company, also known as VOC, first came to the islands that were eventually named after it in 1595 looking for spices. They found plenty. During the 17th century, while people back home in Holland were wearing outrageous wigs and frilly collars and doing stuff like painting pictures of fruit and inventing the microscope, The VOC was bringing bucket loads of cash into the Dutch economy, mostly from spices but also other crops, like tobacco, rubber, and even drugs, opium for example. The VOC weren't just merchants or sailors or even dope pushers. They had a charter from the government of Holland to build fortresses, wage war, and even enslave the locals to work on plantations. Imagine today if Apple, in addition to manufacturing iPhones in China, had its own army and navy, and a string of military bases to protect its investment. We worry today about out-of-control corporate power. The VOC wrote the book on corporate tyranny. Unfortunately for their shareholders, it all came to a crashing halt in 1800. That year, the VOC went bankrupt. The cost of maintaining all those bases and such was just too high. Guess who bailed them out? Well, more bought out than bailed out. The Dutch government. In 1800, they took control of the assets of the VOC, which basically meant taking direct control of the East Indies as a colonial possession. Holland was, in 1800, a total mess. The decline of the VOC went hand-in-hand hand with the decline in fortunes of the Dutch Republic in general. Part of it was that by the late 18th century, Britain and France by now had their own extensive colonies overseas, commercial competition with the Dutch. The Dutch. The world was totally shaken up by the American and French revolutions of the 1770s and 80s, and politically, Holland started to split between factions who were pro-American and pro-British. After a really complicated series of revolts and political intrigues, French forces invaded Holland in 1795, supported by a large part of the population, and the old Dutch Republic was replaced by a new Dutch Republic, called the Batavian Republic, which was a client state of France. Five years later, this government inherited the East Indies when VOC went bankrupt. In 1806, as Napoleon was conquering Europe and handing out pieces of it to be ruled by his relatives, he decided to replace the Batavian Republic, which was a little too independent for his liking, with a kingdom. He made his brother, Louis Napoleon, King of Holland. Therefore, the Dutch East Indies were now essentially the French East Indies, ruled from France by Dutch toadies and cronies all loyal to Napoleon. Britain wanted everything France had. So, of course, the Brits started to think about grabbing the East Indies. The Dutch and French governors essentially made an armed camp out of the East Indies, anticipating a British invasion from India. They built a bunch of new forts and conscripted local people into labor gangs. Not really a very good way to earn the trust of the natives. In the summer of 1811, a huge British force dispatched from India invaded the East Indies. There was a series of battles and retreats, which takes way too long to get into, and a long period of action on the seas around the East Indies, where the British did what they did best at this time, which was to blast the holy Jesus out of everyone else's ships. In 45 days, the British were firmly in control of Java, the main island and administrative center. Lord Minto, the governor of India. I love that name. Sounds like a candy bar, doesn't it? Lord Minto. Anyway, he sends this fellow called Thomas Stamford Raffles to the city of Batavia on Java, we now call it Jakarta, to become the first British governor of the East Indies. Now Raffles, who's usually referred to as Stamford Raffles, was an interesting fellow. If you can believe it, he was only 30 when he was appointed governor. Born in Jamaica, his career started as a clerk In the offices of the British East India Company. He first arrived in Malaysia in 1805 and became intimately familiar with Southeast Asia. History remembers him most for founding the British colony of Singapore in 1819. I may have to do an episode on that. Stamford Raffles has kind of a double reputation. On the one hand, he's remembered as sort of a progressive governor. He introduced some law reforms and put some restrictions on slavery as it was practiced in the East Indies, it was a very different institution, I might add, from slavery as it was practiced in the United States or even in the British West Indies, which is a subject we covered in episode 2. Raffles was definitely no abolitionist, but it does seem that he saw the writing on the wall that slavery was soon to be phased out in the British Empire. Raffles was also keenly interested in the people he found himself ruling. A big part of imperialism at this time was what you might call ethnographic imperialism. What I mean by this is, when Europeans conquered various parts of the world, they usually went around studying what they'd conquered, the habits and social structures of the local people, and especially their cultural and archaeological history. The French and British both did this in Egypt. British did it in India, French and Germans would do it in Africa later in the 19th century. This kind of ethnographic imperialism is why, for example the British Museum in London, is stuffed to the gills with ancient artifacts stolen from the various countries they ruled. Anyway, Raffles' memoirs are filled with descriptions of people of the East Indies, how they lived, their local politics and social structures, and what little the British could learn of the ancient history of the people who lived there. The tone of all this is very paternalistic, as you might imagine, but actually being interested in the people you conquered is what passes for being a progressive colonial governor in 1810. On the other hand, Raffles was a conqueror. After taking control of Java in 1811, he started sending out military expeditions to the surrounding islands, basically taking out the local rulers and establishing British control. For example, he took out the Sultan of Palembang, a fellow called Mahmud Badaruddin II, who's evidently famous enough to appear on modern Indonesian banknotes. Raffles set up British bases that he hoped might endure if perhaps when, the East Indies was returned to Dutch rule after the defeat of Napoleon, which by 1811 seemed increasingly likely. Still, I don't want to give you the wrong idea about how British rule worked in the East Indies. As it was in many of these tropical places that Europeans took over, colonial rule was sort of a very thin crust spread over the traditional indigenous ways of life. The majority of the Indies was effectively ruled by local chiefs, which the Europeans never tried to displace, This was certainly true on the island of Sambala. After all, we're talking about a country of millions and millions of people. The British only had a couple thousand. And the Brits couldn't travel that far into the interior of the islands. Malaria is one reason. Quinine hadn't yet been developed in the second decade, which effectively limited European colonial rule to coastlines they could patrol with their ships. Raffles' headquarters, the colonial governorship, was at a place called Buitzenborg, now called Bogor, which is not that far from Jakarta. In addition to British colonial lackeys, he had a retinue of Javanese natives, including slaves. You get the picture in your head of a whitewashed stucco palace with a lot of potted palm trees and a native boy with a palm frond sitting there fanning the British governor as he drinks his brandy on the veranda. That image is a cliché and maybe belongs to the later 19th and 20th centuries, but it's not really that far from reality. Part of Raffles' perhaps undeserved reputation as a progressive governor comes from his wife, Olivia Mariamne Raffles. She was an interesting lady. Ten years older than her husband, she was definitely what you'd call an activist first lady. She had the unusual custom of actually mixing with the local people, inviting native rulers to receptions at the governor's residence, and conducting the sort of social diplomacy you come to expect from British ladies in far-flung colonies. Unfortunately, the hot and humid climate of the East Indies, and the tropical diseases that Europeans weren't used to, turned out to be too much for Mrs. Raffles. On November 26, 1814, after some kind of illness, not clear exactly what, she died. Her grave is still visible at Bogor Botanical Gardens, which is the oldest botanical gardens in Southeast Asia. His wife's death devastated Raffles. This came only a couple of months after the death of Lord Minto, Raffles' friend and the guy who gave him this job. He sank into a deep depression, couldn't do any work, and eventually people around him feared he might himself die of grief, or maybe even commit suicide. In the succeeding months, someone around him, maybe his longtime friend and companion, Thomas Otho Travers, maybe not, suggested that he get out of Buitzenborg, see the country, maybe study those local customs and archaeology that fascinated him so much that ethnographic imperialism that I talked about earlier. In January 1815, Raffles left the colonial capital for a place called Ciceroa, not sure where that is, and he busied himself translating local legends from Javanese into English. He later published this work. In his memoirs, it said, quote, He dined at four o'clock and took a walk for the sake of his health in the evening, and until he retired to rest, he was occupied in reading translating and compiling but his strength and health did not return perhaps from his not being able to amuse his mind without overexertion and too much application End quote. "this was the state of mind hidden away at a distant resort in the countryside of java reeling from the death of his wife that thomas stanford raffles was in when the eruption of tambora suddenly got his attention" Tambora was thought to be extinct. It hadn't erupted in the lifetimes of anyone on the island of Sumbawa, and evidently not in the recollection of their collective history. Or if it had, no one remembered it. Geologists think there were three eruptions in the distant past, one about 3900 BC, another about 1,000 years later, and the latest one was radiocarbon dated to about 740 AD. So there were no local legends about a mountain of fire or anything like that, Sometimes you hear that about volcanoes, like Mount St. Helens in Washington State, but not this one. Then, in 1812, just as the British were cleaning out the French and Dutch, and Mrs. Raffles was starting to hold her soirees at Buitzenborg, Tambora started rumbling. Volcanoes don't just pop like zits. A huge mass of molten rock? Magma. Don't you love that word? Dr. Evil from the Austin Powers movies gave it a certain cachet. Magma. Big blob of magma was coming up to the surface. During this process, you get ash clouds, earthquakes, that sort of thing. But even though the native inhabitants of the East Indies had centuries of experience with huge volcanic eruptions, it's not like anybody was panicked. Still, even though there were no records, you have to figure that with their knowledge of the land, somebody suspected something big was happening. After the disaster, Raffles set about collecting accounts of it from everywhere he could find. British naval captains and officers, traders, even local rulers, like the Raja of Salgar, who I quoted at the beginning of this episode. In fact, compiling accounts of the eruption of Tambora, the British at that time called it Tamboro, this seems to have been one of the activities that Raffles used to regain his strength after his wife's death. On April 5th, 1815, someone, and Raffles conveniently didn't write down exactly who, noticed the first really big activity on Tambora. Here's the account. Quote, The first explosions were heard on this island in the evening of the 5th of April. They were noticed in every quarter and continued at intervals until the following day. The noise was, in the first instance, almost universally attributed to distant cannon, so much so that a detachment of troops were marched from Jakarta in the expectation that a neighboring post was attacked. And along the coast, boats were in two instances dispatched in quest of a supposed ship in distress. On the following morning, however, a slight fall of ashes removed all doubt as to the cause of the sound, and it is worthy of remark that as the eruption continued, the sound appeared to be so close that in each district it seemed near at hand. A British East Indies Company ship called the Benares was anchored at a place called Makassar, about 220 miles away from Tambora. An officer aboard that ship wrote, On the 5th of April, a firing of cannon was heard at Makassar, the sound appeared to come from the southward and continued at intervals all afternoon. Towards sunset, the reports seemed to approach much nearer and sounded like heavy guns occasionally. This was the first part of the eruption. A plume of volcanic dust called ejecta. It sounds awfully clinical, doesn't it? Doctor, I was in bed with my girlfriend last night and there's something wrong with my ejecta. Anyway, ejecta. Uh, The plume rose 20 miles into the air, raining down these fine particles of dust. This first eruption was big enough that some of the local villages sent messengers to a place called Bima, the nearest government outpost, to tell the Brits to investigate. They sent out a guy named Israel, and he got there on April 9th. By this time, the mountain had calmed down a bit. Locals might have thought it was over, or at least that the worst was over. Then, about 7 p.m. on the evening of Monday, April 10th, 1815, the big one happened. Surprisingly, the eruption lasted less than three hours, But it was so powerful, it literally blew the entire top off of Tambora. I told you that the summit of Tambora before 1815 was estimated at 14,100 feet. That's about the height of Mount Shasta in California, and taller than Mount Fuji in Japan. Today, the top of the crater is at 8,930 feet. The eruption erased over 5,000 feet of elevation. That's a hell of a lot of rock. Where did it all go? A lot of it went straight up. Geologists estimate, now I'm going to throw a mathematical figure at you here. They estimate that the discharge rate, that's the rate at which Tambora was spewing vaporized rock into the atmosphere, this speed was 3 times 10 to the 8th power kilograms per second. I have no idea what exactly that means, but that sounds awfully fast. Scientists estimate the column of ejecta was 26 miles tall. That's well into the Earth's stratosphere. That's the layer of air where the most important patterns of global air currents occur. For three hours on the evening of April 10, 1815, this jet was spewing hundreds of cubic miles of vaporized rock directly into the atmosphere. You could have seen this from space. The disasters that Tambora unleashed were pretty horrific. The whirlwind that the Raja of Saugar talked about is probably what geologists call a pyroclastic flow. What that is, is a super hot, very fast moving current of gas and rock that spreads outward from a volcanic eruption. How hot? Try 1800 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hotter, far hotter than the melting point of lead, twice the temperature on the surface of Venus. How fast? How about 450 miles an hour? Slightly less than the cruising speed of a Boeing 747. So basically, you have a curtain of superheated airborne rock, hot enough to melt everything in its path, coming at you at the speed of a jumbo jet in flight. You're not going to get away from that. If you're living in one of those sleepy villages in the shadow of Tambora, this is game over. Casualties? Well, as best as we can tell, 10 to 12,000 people were killed directly by the blast. We lost 3,000 on 9-11. So imagine four 9-11s. Israel, the British colonial guy sent from Bima to report back, he was killed. The Raja of Saugar barely escaped with his life. But that's not all. After the blast of hot gas and rock, for three or four days, Tambora spurted out magma, there's that word again, which flowed down the sides. As this cooled, it became what's known as pumice, which is a light volcanic stone filled with bubbles, so many that pumice usually floats on water. But this stuff flowed in sheets all the way down the sides of the mountain, wiping away everything in its path, burying entire villages. Then there's the ash fall. The main column spewing out of the mountain collapsed at about 10 p.m. The geologists call this a gravitational fountain collapse. It must have been something to see, except probably you couldn't see it because the sky was completely filled with ash and dust particles raining down. Remember, 5,000 feet of rock has now been sliced and diced and barfed up into the atmosphere. Only the smallest particles are going to remain airborne, that's still plenty, but the rest has to fall to Earth. Dark clouds of ash and dust circle the top of the mountain. There's a report from the crew of a ship sailing near Sumbawa, and they describe the summit totally encircled in black clouds, with fire and flame shooting out of it. There are flashes of fire and lightning that occur within volcanic clouds, I'm not sure what causes that perhaps the friction of, uh, of currents of dust rubbing against each other, but the eyewitness accounts of volcanic eruptions often describe lightning flashing in the clouds. The ash fall was so heavy, daylight was completely blotted out for at least two days. In Bima, the nearest colonial center, darkness lasted until noon on April 12th. So much ash fell from the sky and piled on rooftops that buildings started to collapse. Even the house of the colonial official in Bima, called the Resident, fell in from the weight of ash falling down on it. Some of you listening right now, the older people among you, might remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington in 1980. I was just a kid then, but I certainly do remember it. My family was living in the Sacramento Valley, which is hundreds of miles from St. Helens, but we got a slight dusting of ash. Those of you who lived in places like Portland in the spring of 1980, might remember much more. I've heard people talk about sweeping ashes out of their driveways. There were traffic jams on major highways because visibility was so poor. I remember seeing in National Geographic a picture of roses at the famous International Rose Test Garden that's in Portland, covered with gray ash. So just to put this in perspective, the Tambora eruption of 1815 was 100 times as powerful as Mount St. Helens in 1980. So imagine 100 Mount St. Helens is. That's what we're talking about here. The mountain had blown itself apart, but the disaster continued to ripple outward from Sumbawa for the next few days. Remember that ship, the Benares? Here's another report from them. They sailed from Bima and passed by Simbawa on April 23rd, almost two weeks after the blast. Here's what it looked like then. Quote, in passing it at the distance of about six miles, the summit was not visible, being enveloped in clouds of smoke and ashes sides smoking in several places, apparently from the lava which had flowed down at not being cooled, several streams have reached the sea, a very considerable one to the north-northwest of the mountain, the course of which was plainly discernible. Both from the black color of the lava contrasted with the ashes on each side of it, and the smoke which rose from every part of it. This comes from an 1816 publication called the Asiatic Journal. Almost everyone in Southeast Asia knew something big had happened. The explosion of Tambora was possibly the loudest sound heard on Earth in the past 500 years. There's reports of it being heard at a place called Trumon on the island of Sumatra, which is 1,600 miles away from Tambora, farther away than Tambora is from the site where Raffles would found the colony of Singapore in 1819. The human effects of this disaster were pretty awful. Let's set aside the 12,000 killed directly, those four 9-11s I was talking about. All the land around Tambora was covered in ashes and pumice. This ruined fields where people grew their crops. The ash got into the streams and sources of fresh drinking water, causing people and animals to get sick. Cattle and horses started dying. In a place where people depend on agriculture, a horse or a cow dying on your little subsistence farm is a disaster. It means you can't plow your fields or get water or the supplies you need. The ocean around the island was contaminated with ash as well as temperature contamination meaning if you depend on fishing for your living, you're screwed too. Famines and outbreak of disease rippled outward from Tambora in the months that followed the eruption. Raffles, who was soon back on the job in Buitzenborg, sent an officer, one Lieutenant Phillips, to survey the damage in the months afterwards and to deliver emer- emergency food supplies, rice mainly, to the people affected by the eruption. Here's his report. Quote, on my trip towards the western part of the island, I passed through nearly the whole of Dompo and a considerable part of Bima. The extreme misery to which the inhabitants had been reduced is shocking to behold. There were still on the roadside the remains of several corpses and the marks of where many others had been interred. The villages were almost entirely deserted, and the houses fallen down, the surviving inhabitants having dispersed in search of food. In Dompo the sole subsistence of the inhabitants for some time past has been the heads of the different species of palm and the stalks of the papaya and plantain. Since the eruption, a violent diarrhea has prevailed in Bima, Dampur, and Saugar, which has carried off a great number of people. It is supposed by the natives to have been caused by drinking water, which has been impregnated with the ashes, and horses have also died in great numbers from a similar complaint. End quote. How many people died as a result of the Tambora disaster? Both those directly killed and the indirect victims like the ones Philip saw. We'll never know, and historians continue to argue. I've heard 41,000, I've heard 71,000, I've heard 88,000, I've heard 112,000. My experience in dealing with historical disasters is the numbers you get are always a little bit too low, possibly a lot too low. It's real easy to underestimate, especially when dealing with native peoples living in rural places where governments don't tend to count them. The eruption of Krakatoa in 1883, 10 times smaller, killed about 40,000 directly. I don't think a figure of 112,000 for Tambora is too high. Well, does it matter? I mean, we know this disaster was of incredible proportions, like nothing the world has seen for centuries or has seen since. The aftermath. There's a lot of it. You could see it in the sky. Volcanic dust in the upper atmosphere causes spectacular sunsets, and there were a lot of them reported all over the world, in the spring and summer of 1815. I've read some of the accounts. It's said that landscape painter J.M.W. Turner was inspired by brilliant sunsets he saw in England at that time. In summer 1815, no one in England knew about the eruption of Tambora. It took months for the news to spread around the world. Volcanic sunsets really are stunning. I've seen them myself. I remember personally one of the most beautiful sunsets I ever saw was in New Mexico in 1991 not long after the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines. I also recall a particularly beautiful sunset in 1995, just after the volcano on the Caribbean island of Montserrat caused so much destruction that the entire island was uninhabited for years afterwards. The sunsets of 1815 must have been something to see. The effects on the world's climate were astounding. The year without summer, 1816, is one of the central events of the second decade. I'm going to do a dedicated episode on probably a series of episodes. The short version, snow in June, frost in August, food riots in Switzerland, famines in Ireland, the creation of the novel Frankenstein, all linked to Tambora. Six months after the disaster, in October 1815, the crew of a British ship sailing the Indian Ocean toward Calcutta encountered a huge raft of pumice floating in the water. It's said to have had the appearance of seaweed but we were quite astonished to find it burnt cinders, evidently volcanic. This was found over 2,000 miles west of Tambora. Stamford Raffles' tenure as governor of the East Indies did not go, according to how the British government and the British East India Company planned. The next year, 1816, he was relieved of his post, mainly because profits were down, and he was accused of various shady financial dealings. He had to sail back to England to get himself out of the soup, which eventually he did. In 1817, he married his second wife, wrote a book on the history of Java, and got posted again to Southeast Asia. In 1819, Raffles founded Singapore. He died in London in 1826, mostly broke, only 44 years old. I'm pretty confident we're going to meet Stamford Raffles again in a future episode. As Raffles had predicted, the East Indies themselves were returned to the administration of Holland after Napoleon's first defeat in 1814, though it took a while for the Dutch colonial administration to return and get things running again. From 1816, when the Dutch returned, until 1945, when the East Indies achieved independence and became the modern country of Indonesia, the Indies were one of the richest colonial possessions on earth, especially when the main squeeze turned from spices to petroleum. The area around Mount Tambora remained deserted for almost a century. In the aftermath of the violent eruption, no one wanted to live near it, In fact, no human being visited the scene of the disaster until 1847, when a Swiss botanist scaled the mountain to study the effects the eruption had on the local ecosystem. After 32 years, there was still smoke covering the crater of Tambora. In 1907, people started to move back to the area of Mount Tambora. It's said that a coffee plantation was started near there. By then, a century after the disaster, the landscape had been reclaimed by rainforest and other plants. Over the years, natives started finding small artifacts seeping up through the old layers of pumice that had been laid down by the eruption. In 2004, a team of scientists from the University of Rhode Island visited the slopes of Tambora, hoping to find the remnants of peoples who might have lived there. Using ground-penetrating radar, they discovered something, a structure of some kind, 10 feet under the surface. They started digging. What they discovered was absolutely amazing. Buried under the pumice, they found a house, mostly intact, which had originally been built on stilts, the way traditional houses were in Southeast Asia. Inside the house, the researchers found two dead people, frozen in time, buried by the volcanic flow, just like the bodies at Pompeii. There were artifacts in the house that were still intact, bowls, bottles, dishes, little bits of jewelry, bronze, stuff like that. Some of them were painted with designs similar to pottery made in Vietnam and other parts of Southeast Asia. People who lived in this house were relatively well-to-do. So think about this. These people, possibly man and wife, sat down to dinner on a warm evening in April 1815. Who knows what kind of warning they had if they ignored it or they thought they couldn't get away. When the mountain exploded, their house was buried in a sudden flow of ash and rock, which killed them and preserved them perfectly for almost 200 years. These people, whose stories never got written down, speak to us more strongly and the tales of the survivors who saw the eruption from afar or heard about it. These are the kinds of people whose stories from the second decade we should remember. And that's our story for tonight. Incidentally, if you're wondering why you may not have heard of this very big disaster, Tambora, when you have almost certainly heard of a similar but much smaller disaster, Krakatoa, which happened in 1883, I'm going to do a special bonus lecture on video about Krakatoa which is going to be available to patrons of my Patreon account. You can find that at patreon.com slash seanmunger. Sean Munger is all one word. If you want to hear about why Krakatoa is famous and Tambora isn't, pledge something to my Patreon account and you'll get access to the video. It's going to be pretty interesting. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it. Mention it on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever is your thing. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Memoir of the Public Services of Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles by Lady Sophia Hull Raffles, published by John Murray of London, 1830, and a scientific article by Clive Oppenheimer. Climatic, Environmental, and Human Consequences of the Largest Known Historic Eruption, Tambora Volcano, Indonesia, Published in Progress in Physical Geography, Volume 27, Number 2, 2003. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.